Welcome to History Class After Hours. I'm Joseph Barra, and today joining me is Jack, who is becoming our Old West expert. Pew, pew. Let's go, Texas. Oh, we're not. Well, there's, there's a little bit of Texas in this one. All right. So you, are you ready to hear about another lawman of the Old West? Yeah. All right. This guy is a little bit more uh, moral, let's put it that way, <laughs> than, our, than our last story on uh, Doc Holliday. <laughs> Um, so today we are going to talk about a man whose name is Bass Reeves. Very interesting story be, behind him. Keanu Reeves? Is he related? No. No, <laughs> definitely not related to Keanu. All right. So Reeves was born in 1833 to slave parents in Crawford Count, Arkansas. Uh, he was owned by a man whose name was William Reeves, who was a farmer and a politician. Um, and Reeves, as was typical for a lot of slaves during this time period, he would take the surname of his owner and the first name from his father. All right, so that's why he got that name, Bass Reeves. Um, he worked as a water boy until he was old enough to become a field hand. And in 1846, William Reeves would move his plantation to Grayson County, Texas. Yeah, Texas. You Let's where, go. You know where Grayson County is? No idea. Oh, okay. <laughs> Some Texan you are. <laughs> I just know where Dallas is. That's the important thing. <laughs> All right. So Bass was a pretty big guy. He was uh, six foot two. Um, he was described as having good manners and a great sense of humor. So he was very well liked. Uh, when he got older, William Reeves' son George would make him his personal valet, bodyguard, and personal companion. And wherever George went, Bass would follow. Seems kind of weird to be putting somebody as your bodyguard who, you know, kind of yeah um, has a lot it, of reason to do bodily harm to you yeah it just doesn't seem safe yeah kind of kind of a weird decision there yeah um so when the civil war broke out george would take bass with him as he fought for texas and this was you hear a lot of accounts of this where um slave owners would take some of their slaves with them as they went off to battle to, to continue serving on them and things like that um, so during this time, though, Bass would flee to Indian Territory, which is modern-day Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Right? Oklahoma was truly the wild, wild west back then, because since it was in control of Native Americans, who didn't have jurisdiction there? The United States. The United States, federal or state governments. Yeah. All right. So some say that he, uh, Bass had heard of freeing of the slaves and ran away. So he probably heard of what famous proclamation? Probably the Emancipation Proclamation. Mas Emancipation Proclamation, yep. Um, others say, I like this story more, he knocked out George in a poker game and escaped. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good, pretty cool story. Yeah, that's a lot better story. I mean, that must have been, I mean, I guess if you were stationed in Texas, that'd still be a long ways to go, especially depending on where he was. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird. You were stationed in Texas when nothing really happened then, except like the. Well, they weren't in Texas anymore. Oh, they weren't. He he served for um, the Texan Army, and oh. they then they moved north. Oh, okay. To probably fight in some conflict there. I'm not necessarily sure where they were when he escaped, but it was it wasn't in Texas. Okay. I know that. If I had to guess, probably like Missouri, okay. somewhere around there. All right. Um, so while in Indian Territory, he learned the language and customs of many of the tribes that were living there, including the Seminole, Cherokee, and Creek. 
Uh, here he would also improve his firearm and tracking skills. He claimed to only be an average shot with a rifle, but he was often barred from taking part in turkey shoots because he was always winning them. So he, he kind of over-exaggerated how um, non-proficient he was in firing a rifle. Hmm. Guess not to draw too much attention to yourself. Yes. Be better. Ever been involved in a turkey shoot? No. Either have I. I'm wondering if they just kind of march a turkey out there and you, <laughs> you try to shoot it. But I'm imagining the turkey from South Park. <laughs> just kind of walking out there mindless. <laughs> so after the Civil War, Basil returned to Arkansas, and he becomes a successful farmer and a rancher. He then gets married to a woman named Nellie Jenny, and the two of them would have ten kids. Big family. Yes. And from my understanding, they all survive, which wow. is very uncommon for back then. That is really rare. At this time, he also began working with the U.S. Deputy Marshals, occasionally as a scout when they had to go into Indian Territory to go apprehend somebody. So even if you committed a crime within the United States and then fled into Indian Territory, the U.S. government could still come after you and get you. Yeah, now, if you committed a crime in Indian Territory, they couldn't come after you. Yeah. So that's the, the big difference there. I assume they had extradition treaties with them? Mm -hmm. or and probably forced on them more likely, if anything. Yeah, I'm guessing more likely forced. Yeah. <laughs> but, but because Bass had spent time there and gotten to know the languages and the land and stuff like that, he became a very good scout for the U.S. Deputy Marshals. All right. So his life would really change when the Western District Court moved to Arkansas, and a guy by the name of Isaac Parker is going to be appointed as the judge of the Western District Court. Okay, so Parker himself is an interesting feller. Um, he would preside over the Indian Territory, which at the time was extremely lawless. We've kind of already talked about this. Thieves, murders, and anyone else wishing to hide from the law took refuge there knowing there was no federal or state jurisdiction. Truly the wild, wild west. You can yeah. do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, Parker himself was called the hanging judge because he would sentence so many men to death. He would hold court for the first time on May 10th, 1875. Eight men are going to be found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. Wow. And Parker himself was kind of a, a contradiction. Uh, he held court six days a week. Wow, that's... Sundays were the only day off. Often up to 10 hours each day. I'm going to say this is the hardest working man in the legal system. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's put it in 60 hours a day. He's... He's something else. He's working hard. Yeah. And he's going to try 91 defendants in his first eight weeks on the bench. So he Nine. is just flying through cases. <laughs> wow, that is a lot of people. 91. In the first summer alone, 18 people came before him charged with murder. 15 are going to be convicted. Eight of them are sentenced to death uh, via hanging. Only six, though, would be executed. One was killed trying to escape, and the second had his sentence commuted to life in prison because he was a youth. Wow. Even the youth. So, yeah, they were about to, like, hang, like, a 14-year-old. Like, who, who had committed murder, by the way. But yeah. That's also, I mean, I can't imagine the legal system then, like, having, how long you could prove anything. And, mm -hmm. I guess you had witnesses, and that was about it. Also, the, like, 14 back then was, like, 30 now. Yeah. So. Your life expectancy wasn't as, as long. 
Um, though the hangings were an indication that the once corrupt court was functioning again, Parker's critics dubbed him the hanging judge and called his court the court of the damned because so many people went in there, got convicted, and then were sentenced to death or life in prison. He would hang 73 more men until his death in 1896. But this is where the contradiction comes into play. Um, Parker actually favored the um, getting rid of the death penalty. But he was such a proponent of adhering to the letter of the law that because the law said this is what your sentence should be for, for murder, yeah. I'm going to carry it out. At one time he said, in the uncertainty of punishment following a crime lies the weakness of our halting justice. All right. However, Parker reserved most of his sympathy for the crime uh, victims and is now seen as one of the first advocates of victims' rights. So he really made sure that like, um, the identity of victims was protected and things like that. So let's say if there was a cowboy that was part of a posse and he killed somebody or injured somebody, something like that, the rest of the posse couldn't like, come after like, witnesses and the victim. Witness protection, basically. Kind of, yeah. Um, in 21 years on the bench, Judge Parker tried 13,490 cases, 344 of which were capital crimes, which probably means murder. murder. 9,454 cases resulted in guilty pleas or convictions. So he's... I mean, especially uh, if you're going up against the guy who, you know, what, hung seven people in his first mm -hmm. day, I don't think it would be, you know... Great chance of I'm, I'm not getting a, anything lenient out of him. I'm not a math wizard there, but that's a little bit over 75%. So yeah. he's got a pretty good batting average. <laughs> um, over the years, Judge Parker sentenced 160 men to death by hanging, though only 79 of them were actually hung. The rest either died in jail, appealed, or were pardoned. All right. So, like I said, Parker's kind of an interesting character in the Old West as well. So he is going to call to find 200 deputies. Bass Reeves was recruited because of his linguistic abilities and the ability to just track an Indian territory. Yeah. So the deputies were tasked with cleaning up the Indian territory and bringing in the criminals dead or alive, and often they would get a, a, a reward for doing so. So basically bounty hunters? Yeah, they're pretty much bounty <laughs> hunters that have been hired yeah. by the government, and typically you got more money if the person was alive. Oh, okay. Uh, Reeves would work with other lawmen like Heck Thomas, Bud Ledbetter. These are definitely some Wild West They names. are. <laughs> Bud Ledbetter, that's a good one. You don't, you don't see very many Bud Ledbetters walking around these days. And Bill Thyman. And they're going to be responsible for patrolling an area that spans 75,000 square miles. Wow. This is an extensive chunk of land that they're in charge of. Yeah. All right. So even though Reeves could not read or write, um, he was still really, really good at capturing criminals. And he was just a very, very intelligent man. He just never was taught how to read or write. Um, before heading out, he would have someone read him the warrants, and he would memorize them all word for word. Wow. And we'd also memorize the face to the warrant. Wow. Okay. So when asked to produce the warrant, he never failed to pick the right one. So he would go out in the Indian Territory with like seven guys to arrest, and he would find one of them and read out the correct warrant that was for their arrest. Wow. So he, he has a, a really very good memory. Yeah, he's got a very good memory. His presence was known and intimidating. 
he would uh, ride a large white stallion. That's pretty like, pretty picturesque, Wild West. Like, mm -hmm. Riding on a white stallion. Always know he's coming. Yeah. It's like the, the, the sirens, <laughs> the flashing lights, you know it's yeah. coming. Uh, wore a large hat and always had his shoes polished. So he maintained a very dapper look. He was also a master of disguise um, and taking on fake personas. One time he would, uh, he'd often leave Fort Smith with a pocket full of warrants. He would return months later, bringing in a number of outlaws that uh, were charged with everything from murder to bootlegging. That's a lot of people to, I mean, like I assume you just kind of tie them to the end of your horse and you just kind of walk them back. I, I think he has like a, like a, like a paddy wagon following him. You know what a paddy wagon is? Yeah. It's like the, <laughs> the, the van that they throw like a lot of like people in, like when they're arresting a lot of people at the same yeah. time. I, I, I think he's got like a wagon following him. They just like huh. chain him up and throw him in the back of the wagon and say, you're coming with us. Um, he's going to be paid for each criminal apprehended and he is going to become extremely wealthy based off these apprehensions. So there's a lot of cool kind of stories about some of the, the criminals that he was able to capture. Uh, one was he was pursuing two outlaws near the Texas border, and he's going to gather a posse and set up camp about 28 miles from where the outlaws were hiding out. They were hiding out in their mom's house. And they had some type of secret whistle where they would hide out during the day, and at night they would like do the whistle, and the mom had like a way to answer if it was safe to come in the house, and there they would sleep, and the next morning they'd go hide out again. Oh. Well, he's going to disguise himself as basically a hobo. <laughs> so he has his pistol, handcuffs, and badge under his coat, but on the exterior he's not as, as dressing as uh, flashy as he normally would. Um, he was wearing an old pair of shoes, dirty clothes, he was carrying a cane, and wearing a floppy hat that had three bullet holes in it. Huh. Once again, he's going with his, like, hobo he, in person. He's really adding to his persona there. He is. I mean, he's, he, yeah. He's might as well go all out. And also remember that they kind of know that there's this posse looking for him, and he's going to use that to his advantage. So upon arriving at the home, he told a tale to... Uh, the woman who were two outlaws mother um, that his feet were aching after having been pursued by a posse who had put those three bullet holes in his hat after asking for a bite to eat she invited him in and while he was eating she began to tell him about her two sons that were those outlaws that he was chasing suggesting that he should join their gang that the three of them would be <laughs> great outlaws together robbing people stealing horses and things like that oh my gosh he then um, continued the charade and was like, oh, I'm so tired, I just can't go on anymore. And she is going to allow him to stay a little bit longer until he rests up. So as the sun was setting, Reeves heard a sharp whistle coming from beyond the house. Those are the two, her two sons who are trying to see, is it okay yeah. for us to come in? Um, she went outside, responded with her own yeah. whistle, and they come in. Huh. Before long, the two riders rode up to the house talking at length with her outside. The three of them then came inside, and, and she introduced her sons to Reeves. After discussing their various <laughs> crimes to Reeves, they agreed it would be a good idea to form a posse together <laughs> and just going around robbing people and things like that. 
they have no clue who this is. Like, like some they don't know like this famous lawman <laughs> is sitting in their living room as they're confessing to all these crimes and asking him to join in with that. So I'm assuming it's a relatively small house because Reeves, they tell him he can uh, sleep at the house and he's going to end up sleeping in the same room as the two brothers. Well, Reeves will watch them very carefully and wait for them to completely fall asleep. And when they start snoring deeply, he takes out his handcuffs and he basically cuffs them. Wow. Without waking them. (laughs) So either they're out cold or he is very sleight of hand and is able to sneak those things on and he handcuffs them. When early morning approached, he kicked the boys awake and marched them out the door. What about the third? Wasn't there three? He's the third one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he starts bringing them back to that posse that's 28 miles away. Well, in a comical kind of moment here, their mother walks with them for three miles cursing at him <laughs> and swearing at him and probably, like, throwing rocks and dirt at him. Like, I'm surprised the mother wasn't arrested, but I guess there wasn't any, like, laws for, like... Yeah, for, harboring, for, harboring yeah. your sons. Ah. Yeah. So, uh, within days, so the outlaws are going to be delivered to the authorities and... Bass is going to collect a $5,000 reward three, to put that in three perspective. Days. It took three days to March 20. Just imagine being with those guys for three days. Like, what are you talking? Like, it must be really awkward. Mm-hmm. After that. <laughs> that three-day walk. Um, that $5,000 reward is the equivalent of $120,000 today. Wow. So that is a handsome haul. So he is, you're talking, if, if this is the averages, you're talking for every person he brings in, he's making about sixty grand. Wow. And what we saw, that one where he brought in like seven or eight at a time. Yeah. So he, he's making himself some money. Another story. One day Reeves is running down a pair of Texan murderers Yeehaw. when they got the drop on him, or it so seemed. Uh, Reeves encountered two men on the road, and they asked him if he was Bass Reeves. Reeves said that he was not, and the outlaws pulled their guns on him, forcing him to ride with them until they encountered someone who knew him and could identify him as Bass Reeves. They didn't want to just kill a random man that they found that's marching a, in the wilderness. That's at least nice, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Let's oh. confirm this is you before we kill you. Yeah. All right, so after counting along for, um, continuing along for some time, the Texans got tired of holding Reeves hostage, <laughs> and they're like, we're done. We're just going to kill you. Okay. Wow. And like you see in a lot of the old movies, they asked Reeves if he had any last request or words. He tells them, listen, I have this letter from my wife in my pocket. Can you please take it out and read it to me before you kill me? Um, So they all get off their horses, and Reeves handed them the letter with shaking hands, like as he was, like, trembling and terrifying. But this is all part of the act. Like, he knows what he's about to do. So as the men took their eyes off of Reeves to read the letter, he drew his gun on the outlaw holding the letter, and the other one was so terrified and startled he dropped his gun in surprise. <laughs> wow. Reeves what, really is great outlaws of you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> he moved. Oh. <laughs> At least he didn't, like, drop his gun and accidentally, like, discharged and, like, shot him in the foot or something. That would just be even more comical. <laughs> yeah. But um, Reeves brought them both in, and it's a trick that he is going to use multiple times. So this has happened to him <laughs> more than once where... Outlaws have kind of caught him trying, like, stalking him, and they've captured him. He's like, please read me my letter. 
<laughs> and then as they take the letter out and start reading it, he pulls out his gun and wouldn't somebody like him. if you have two people, why, why wouldn't you have somebody watching the guy? And somebody, you would think yes. They're not, I don't think they're very smart. Probably not. I'm shocked that they can read. <laughs> yeah. That'd be really funny if they actually couldn't read either. <laughs> They're probably that, maybe that's why they need the second guy. Okay, yeah. <laughs> All right. So one of the high points of Reeves' career was apprehending a notorious outlaw named Bob Dozier. He was a uh, jack of all trades when it came to committing crimes. Uh, everything from stealing cattle and horses to holding up banks, stagecoaches. He even was accused of murder and stealing land from people. How do you steal land from like? I guess you just um, just put a. My in. guess is he would like not necessarily steal land. I probably said that wrong. Um, he would sell land that wasn't his. <laughs> yeah, here's so the deed like, to this land. Here's a great hundred acres of land. Give me a thousand dollars. The person would give him a thousand dollars. He'd run off, and then there'd be like Farmer Bob living there, and be like, "Hey, that's my land." <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, Dozier was extremely unpredictable, so therefore it was he was very hard to catch because he never really went to the same places and he didn't really have like a schedule and things like that. Um, so he had eluded Reeves for several months until a lawman had finally tracked him down in the Cherokee Nation. And after refusing to surrender, Reeves will kill Dozier in a gunfight on December 20th, 1878. Almost near Christmas. Yeah. I think he got less money because Reeves, because Dozier yeah, was dead. So in 1887, Reeves is going to be charged with murdering a posse cook, probably one of the lower moments of his life. Um, like the many outlaws he had arrested, he was tried before Judge Isaac Parker. So he has to now go in front of the hanging judge. But he was represented by the United States Attorney W.H.H. H. Clayton, who was a colleague and a friend, and in the end, he is going to be acquitted because I think they say it was self-defense. Well, like, I mean, I assume if you're part, if you're the judge, I assume you would know the officer and mm -hmm. he's probably know that he brought him in, at least brought in some of the criminals, right, that you tried? Yeah, I would have to think that, like, character witnesses probably played a big role in this. Yeah. All right, so in 1889, after Reeves was charged, I already said that, my bad. In 1889, after Reeves was assigned to Paris, Texas. Yeah, yeehaw. I actually know where that is. Where's Paris, Texas? It's like, so if you're looking at Texas, it's like the northeast part, portion-ish. And they actually do have a mini Eiffel, uh, Eiffel Tower there. Do they really? Yeah, of course, you know. Get a so it's like by like Texarkana? Yeah, more or less. Oh, okay. I what? mean, it's a little bit more west, but it's like it's like in between Dallas and Texarkana-ish. How, how big is this Eiffel Tower? Not very tall. It's like probably hundred something feet. Oh. It, it's like it's supposed to be disappointing. You're supposed to be disappointed. Oh, okay. It, it's like, oh yeah, we're taking. I'm taking you to Paris, honey, and then you show up. So there. it's the tower of disappointment. <laughs> yeah. All right. So in Paris, Texas, he went after the Tom Story gang of horse thieves. This was a common thing in the, the <laughs> Wild West. Why is everyone always stealing horses? I guess that was your main source of transportation. I mean, I guess it's like Grand Theft Auto. I guess, yeah. He waited along the route that the gang was known to have used and surprised Tom Story with an arrest warrant. The outlaw panicked and drew his gun, but Reeves was a far better drawer than him and shot him dead. The rest of the gang disbanded and were never heard of from again. So that is truly cutting the head off the snake. Yeah. Take the leader out. Everyone else is just like, well, all right, we're done. 
1890, Reeves arrested a notorious Seminole outlaw named Greenleaf, who had murdered seven people and had been a fugitive for 18 years. Um, that year, he also went after the famous Cherokee outlaw Ned Christie, and Reeves and his posse burned Christie's cabin, but he eluded <laughs> capture. Yikes. It's <laughs> <laughs> the Eiffel Tower in Paris, e Texas. Eli just showed me a picture of the Eiffel Tower in Paris, Texas. <laughs> With the little cowboy hat. So sad. <laughs> so in 1896, Reeves' wife will die in Fort Smith, and the next year he was transferred to the Muscogee Federal Court in Indian Territory. And in 1900, he married for a second time to a woman named Winnie Sumter. Um, but I mean, after that guy is old at this point, right? I mean, he was born in what, probably 1840s? I 1833. So he is 67, right, Matt? 63. Ah, uh, you know math. Wait. Yeah, 63. <laughs> yeah. We're math wizards here. Yeah. That's why, that's why I teach history. Um, <laughs> So his toughest mission is going to be um, the fact that he is going to be ordered to hunt down his own son in 1902. Um, after having delivered two prisoners to U.S. Marshal Leo Bennett in Muskoka, Oklahoma, he arrived to bad news. His own son, Benny, had been charged with murder after having killed his wife in a fit of jealousy. Uh, though the warrant had been lying on Bennett's desk for two days, the other deputies reluctant to take it to him and thought Reeves was shaken. He demanded to accept the responsibility for finding his own son. Once again, ultimate law well, man Well, probably being away for so, so long probably didn't really he, help. Um, I mean, from my understanding is he'd go off on these missions for like maybe two weeks, and then he'd go home and like sit on the farm for like a couple months. Would he? So it wasn't just like constantly yeah. he was out. He would, he would go out, apprehend like seven or eight guys, make his money, and then come back and just chill on the farm for a little bit. Oh, okay. Um, so two weeks later, Reeves returned to Muskogee with his son in tow and turned him over to Marshal Bennett. His son was tried, convicted to a life in prison, and sent to Kansas Leavenworth Penitentiary. Later, with a citizen's petition and an exemplary prison record, Bonnie Reeves was pardoned and lived the rest of his life as a model citizen. Leavenworth Penitentiary, that's, that's big time nowadays. Yeah. Isn't that the no. big federal prison? Yeah, I think so. Where, like, everybody gets sent to? Fort Leavenworth. Yeah. All right. um, so as feared as he was, he was fearless. Uh, as feared as he was fearless, Reeves earned the nickname the Invincible Marshal. Thanks to stories of dramatic close calls where a bullet knocked the hat off his head or cut the reins of his horse. Wow. He also had the habit of dressing up in disguises to get close to his targets. I mean, there was that one hobo one. The hobo disguise. <laughs> he gets them every time. Every time. In 1909, though, he had to retire after being diagnosed with Bright's disease, having never uh, been shot by an outlaw. So in all those gunfights and all that stuff, he never got wounded. Wow. He had, like, hat shot off. That's really lucky. Things shot off his horses, all that stuff. Never got hit. Um, Bright's disease is a kidney ailment. And it's going to end up killing him in 1910. Oh. So, I mean, he was still pretty old. Yeah. Do the math again. Nine, uh, 76. <laughs> I mean, that was really old. 77 then. years old. Yeah, that's, that's pretty old, especially yeah. for the lifestyle he lived. Was it very Coming from being a slave to living 
just randomly out in Indian Territory and then being an uh, outlaw. Not an yeah. outlaw, outlaw hunter. Uh, his obituary would describe him as absolutely fearless and knowing no master but duty. In his 35 years of law of service, he would arrest 3,000 men and kill 14. Jeez, oh, that's a lot of money. Yeah. How much did I say that one guy took in? Five. Uh, no, the two guys took in $120,000 mm-hmm. by themselves. So it's 60000 per person? 60000 yeah. per person. In, today, in modern money? Do the math, Jack. I, I don't know. I'm on history. But like, oh, that's a lot of zeros. Uh, I can't count. That's funny. What, how? Eighteen million dollars. If the average was sixty thousand dollars per person, he made eighteen million dollars as pretty much a legalized bounty hunter. That's a pretty good take. Hundred eighty million. That <laughs> there's an extra zero in there. He would say, I never shot um, a man when it was necessary for him to do so in discharge of his duty to save his own life. So he's basically saying the only time I ever shot anybody was out of self-defense. Um, yeah, yeah, like I said, he's, he's a pretty honorable guy here. Yeah. Uh, many will argue that the character of the Lone Ranger is based off the life of Bass Reeves. I mean, with the white horse and the... I've actually never seen the Lone Ranger. You didn't? You didn't get no. this? You didn't see the um, Johnny Depp one? No, you know it was a TV show. I didn't see the TV show. Right. I it thought was the TV movie show back in like the I thought the movie was sixties and stuff. Uh, what an interesting story. And of those ten kids, some of his descendants are he was a great uncle of Paul L. Brady, who was the first African-American appointed as a federal administrative law judge in 1972. And he is the great-great-great-grandson, his great-great-great-grandson plays in the NHL, Ryan Reeves. Oh, okay. I'd like to see his family tree. That might be yeah. something to look at. I mean, what, he did have 10 kids. And, but he did have 10 kids. That one did murder survived. his wife, though. So, you know. One, yes, one did go to jail. So. Um, yeah. There's a statue of him in, in Oklahoma. Oh, okay. No, in Fort Smith, Arkansas. My bad. No. And he was also inducted to the Texas Trail of Fame. <laughs> did you ever go see that in Texas, Jack? No. Oh. I, I know. Boring life. Uh, I only went to the big cities. So. You're, you're missing out. I, I did. <laughs> All right. So that's the story of the Invincible Marshal, Bass Reeves. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we will talk about how we lose nuclear weapons. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs>